Hello, Ghastly Ghouls. I am your host, Lee, and welcome to Ghastly. sadly doing this story solo today without Devin. I started a new job like six weeks ago and it's been a real struggle to get episodes written on time with that new schedule. So I am recording the night before the episode release and Devin has class tonight, but he loves and misses you guys. Today, I bring you guys the story of two bright women who lost their lives back in 1982 and the story of a man, a murderer, who I think is a complete idiot. We're traveling to Morristown, New Jersey, so let's hop in. In 1982, Amy Hoffman is a social 18-year-old girl who loves life, loves her friends, loves her social life and cheerleading, and loves her boyfriend, Alex, who is on the football team. A cute little quintessential high school senior couple where the girl's a cheerleader and the guy's on the football team, and they're both super stoked because they have the homecoming dance coming up, and both Amy and Alex are competing for the homecoming crown. Amy was actually born in South Korea in October of 1964 and then was later adopted by an American couple named Frank and Florence Hoffman all the way in Parsippany, New Jersey when she was about five years old. So Amy grows up adapting really well to American culture and makes friends super easily in school. She's a natural, she's always been outgoing, charismatic, and social, and she's one of those people that's just described as everybody's friend. So this girl's got a real shot at winning the homecoming crown too. On top of her cheerleading, Amy also works part-time at a mall about 15 minutes from her house, which is Morris County Mall in Hanover Township, and she works specifically in the surprise store for women, which I had never heard of this store. I think it's kind of defunct now, but it's kind of like a Hobby Lobby or Michael's. It's a craft slash decor store with like fake flowers and art supplies and decorative items for your home. So it's November 23rd, 1982, just a random Tuesday night, and Amy gets dressed in a cute sweater and a plaid skirt with cowboy boots and heads to work after school. She works her shift with several coworkers and then leaves work around 9.30 and heads to her car in the mall parking lot where she always parks every single shift. Her parents usually expect her home by about 10 p.m. on nights that she works, and Amy will typically call her parents from work if the shift is ending later than expected or if plans change. So when Amy is not home by 10 p.m. this night, her parents, Florence and Frank, immediately notice and they become anxious about it. Florence actually picks up her keys and drives straight to the mall herself to investigate, leaving Frank behind at home just in case Amy shows up while she's gone. As Florence pulls into the mall parking lot, she spots Amy's car, which may have been a comforting sign if the door was not open. But the door is open. 
with no sign of Amy anywhere nearby. And this is the driver's door that's open. So Florence calls police who arrive pretty quickly and notice that not only is Amy's driver's door open, but her pocketbook where she keeps her money and her ID is on the front seat with her keys in the ignition of the car. So this scene points to the story that somebody has abducted 18-year-old Amy Hoffman straight out of the front seat of her own car right as she was about to drive home. Keys in the ignition and everything. She was so close to safety. Amy's disappearance took place two days before Thanksgiving of 1982, and her family has to spend this week worrying sick for their missing daughter. And on Thanksgiving Day, November 25th, Florence and Frank receive the heart-wrenching news from the police that their daughter has been found, but Amy is dead. A couple and their dog were out for a leisurely walk around 1 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day in the Mendham Borough Water Reservoir, and as they passed a concrete water holding tank, they were super frightened when they looked over and discovered a girl floating face down in the water with black hair. So they call police, and police show up to find this young girl face down, like I said, wearing cowboy boots, a purple and brown sweater, and a plaid skirt. And as you probably remember, this is the same outfit that Amy wore to work two days prior, the night she disappeared from the mall parking lot. This is Amy Hoffman, and her body has been moved to this holding tank by a stream of water that had naturally just flowed her body from the reservoir where she had been dumped, all the way down to this concrete holding tank. So her body is taken to the medical examiner for examination, where her cause of death is determined to be exsanguination secondary to stab wound of right chest. And exsanguination, if you don't know what that means, is the body being drained of blood. So Amy died of blood loss from a chest stab wound. Amy also has numerous stab wounds and lacerations on her body, many of which are defensive wounds found on her neck, shoulders, and right hand, where actually the fingers on her right hand were nearly severed from the knife and her trying to hold it away from her. And the detail that always makes me saddest from autopsies is that there's evidence of a sexual assault occurring as well, and semen is collected as evidence, although in 1982, DNA testing is not possible yet. So they collect the semen, and then they put it away for storage, maybe hoping that it could be tested one day in the future. But this discovery of Amy and the discovery of the horrible way that she died and the torture that she had to endure before she died, this leaves her family and friends absolutely traumatized, leaves police traumatized, and it leaves the couple who found her traumatized. Her death is so sad and it impacts so many people. So the location of this crime scene is really important to police though. This reservoir is secluded. It's not in the middle of town or a popular hangout spot or anything like that. So this is their first clue that whoever abducted and murdered Amy is likely a local person who is knowledgeable about secluded areas that may hide a body for a few days. And the first person that pops onto police radar is Amy's boyfriend, Alex, which wouldn't surprise you because intimate partners are almost always the first people to come on police radar. Plus, Alex would be informed of Amy's work schedule and location. 
plus he's local so he could know about the location of this reservoir but once they look deeper into Alex his alibi really does check out and there is no way that he could have killed his girlfriend. Plus, they hadn't had any relationship issues or any reasons for him to be angry with her, so they move on to investigate other leads. Officers also question a man named Kevin Shahan, who is the assistant coach of her high school's football team, which was a lead that they had received from someone. Kevin offers differing and conflicting alibis, which of course is a bit suspicious to police, but he eventually also is confirmed not to be involved. An incredibly important tip though comes from a woman named Barbara. Barbara was at the mall in the parking lot the night Amy disappeared. And when news about Amy's murder goes public, Barbara realizes that she was a witness to the abduction that night. She is confident that she saw the car that Amy was abducted and forced into, which is a green Chevy sedan, and that she caught a glimpse of the driver. And a composite sketch of Amy's killer is even made based on Barbara's description of the man. On top of this, police are able to retrieve some tire tracks from the scene, assumedly of the car that Amy had been forced into. As the investigation progresses, a man named James Koedetic is also looked into by police because he lives locally and he resembles the composite sketch a little bit and he has a criminal history of murdering his male roommate like 10 years previously, but he's also let go eventually. Weeks pass by as investigators receive lots of tips, but not any tips that they feel get them any closer to finding the identity of the killer. On Sunday, December 5th, 1983, it's 3.45 in the morning when a truck driver at a pretty isolated truck stop off of I-80 in New Jersey is startled awake by a young woman slamming on his truck door covered in blood. This man opens the door for this bleeding woman who is frantically telling him that she had just been attacked in the woods outside the rest stop and that she knows that she's going to die, but that she needs to tell him or somebody the details of her attacker for the police to know. She says that she just escaped from the woods by the truck stop and that her attacker is a tall, skinny white man with bushy hair and a beard. And this truck driver looks around and notices a large Chevy sedan that he thinks is about late 60s model. He notices this car quickly leaving the area. The man immediately uses his truck citizen's band radio to plea for help in an ambulance from anybody who could hear him. And people actually do hear his pleas nearby. So they call police and an ambulance to the truck stop. And in the meantime, this man is standing here with a woman who is bleeding to death. So he's trying his best to just keep her warm. He puts his sleeping bag around her. He tries to apply some first aid. And this woman is still being sweet enough to just be constantly thanking him for helping her even when she is on the brink of death. The ambulance finally arrives and takes her to the hospital, but her wounds are just too severe and she's pronounced dead at 5.10 a.m. after being taken to the Hackettstown Community Hospital. This young woman is identified to be 25-year-old Deirdre O'Brien. And it turns out Deirdre's car had actually been located by police two hours before police were called to this truck stop. Her car was found 25 miles away from the truck stop by a patrolman off of Washington Valley Road, which is a super remote two-lane road in the countryside of New Jersey. 
At the scene where the car was found, it appeared as if the car had been forced off of the road by another driver, and then the driver of the car had been taken. The keys were in the ignition, the car lights were on, the driver's door was open, and the driver's purse was on the front seat with their money and their ID. Sounds pretty familiar. Sounds identical to Amy's car, minus just the location. So within this purse that was found on the driver's seat is the driver's license of 25-year-old Deirdre O'Brien. And after she's found dead at the truck stop, police communicate pretty quickly to piece together her death and her abandoned car 25 miles away, which happened to be only 2.5 miles from her home where she lived with her parents. She had been taken out of her car, driven 25 miles to the truck stop off of I-80, driven into the woods by the truck stop, sexually assaulted by her abductor, and stabbed four times by the man, and then just dumped in the woods and left for dead. But Deirdre wasn't dead yet. She mustered up the strength to drag herself 100 feet back to the truck stop where she could bang on the door of the nearest truck for help. Deirdre's parents are devastated by the news of their daughter being abducted two and a half short miles away from their home. Deirdre was born in 1957 to her parents, James and Georgia, and grew up with three siblings who she absolutely adored. Deirdre pursued creativity and art throughout her entire life, and she had always been described as extremely artistic and talented, and she attended college for art history and graduated with that degree, and she had this life goal of becoming a museum curator. At the time of her death, Deirdre was working at a restaurant. She died in the early a.m. of Sunday and had worked a double shift the Friday before her murder at the restaurant, but she had Saturday free, which is really rare for someone who works at a restaurant. And so she was able to make fun plans with friends for the whole day that went into that night. So it was after that she was leaving her plans with friends in the early a.m. of Sunday and heading home to her parents' house that she was run off the road, abducted, and killed by this mysterious bushy-haired man. And as December 1982 carries on, both Amy and Deirdre's cases still have not been solved, although police are diligently looking for a killer and accepting leads. But... Police at least have an immensely strong suspicion that the same man conducted both senseless murders because of how similar both of the abductions were, and they believe the murders are sexually motivated because both women were sexually assaulted before being murdered. Deirdre, during her autopsy, it is confirmed that she also was sexually assaulted. And an interesting side note is that both of these women worked just a few minutes away from each other. On January 16th, 1983, so about one to two months after the murders, Morristown police get another phone call reporting that a stabbing has occurred. So they arrive on scene to investigate around midnight, and this victim is very different from the others. This person is a man named James. It's nighttime, and he explains that he was driving on Route 24 when the vehicle behind him started flashing a blue light for him to pull over. So he pulls over thinking that it's a cop, but when the man comes to his car, he sees this man is absolutely not a real cop, and the man attacks him, just starts attacking him with a knife through the window, leaving a puncture wound before James is able to escape and then drive all the way home to get to a phone and call police. 
Because remember, this is a time where people didn't just conveniently have cell phones. An ambulance comes to get James while police are speaking with him at his home, and now they're even more convinced that there's a serial killer on the loose. As police head outside to investigate the car that James was driving and see if they can maybe get any fingerprints or any evidence, they notice something really alarming about James's car. It is a green 1970 Chevrolet sedan matching the exact description provided by the witnesses after both Amy and Deirdre's murders. And now that they think about it, James is a slender, bushy-haired white man with a beard. So the following morning, just a few hours later, James is officially named as a suspect and police request a search warrant for this Chevy. And wouldn't you know it, this James also happens to be the same James that they interviewed for the crimes a month earlier. James Koadetic. This is the man who had served time for murdering his male roommate over 10 years ago. So now, the pieces are falling into place quickly, and when the warrant is granted, police find clothing fibers inside the car from both Amy and Deirdre in the outfits they were wearing when they died. Police also analyze his tires, realizing that they match the tire tracks found in the mall parking lot where Amy was abducted. And remember, James had been dismissed by the police when they questioned him in December, and he was not considered a suspect anymore after this. Like, he was cleared. So this whole scheme of reporting a puncture wound is the reason why I genuinely believe that he is the dumbest, most idiotic serial killer. Like, this man would not have been caught otherwise, but he handed himself to police on a silver platter, and I love it so much. Love when killers are dumb, love when they can get caught before they can kill more people. So, James. Not much is known about this man's younger life other than just the fact he was born in 1948, making him 34 years old at the time of the murders. His very first murder took place in June of 1971, 11 years ago, when he was just 23 years old. So 23-year-old James was living with a 40-year-old roommate named Robert Anderson, all the way down in Florida, which is very far from New Jersey, and James stabbed the roommate to death and robbed him. He, of course, was sent to prison for this, and in prison, he murdered another person who was a fellow inmate, but those charges were dismissed because apparently the murder was self-defense. James ended up only serving 11 years and was paroled from prison in August of 1982. And then upon release, he had to receive special permission from the state to move up to New Jersey and start his new life away from Florida. But within three months of his prison release, James had found young Amy and Deirdre to sexually assault and murder. And now here we are. And I kind of have to wonder, I couldn't find this answer anywhere, but did he give himself a puncture wound just to throw police off like he made this whole story and did it to himself? Or did he try to attack another woman who was actually able to defend herself and get away and just maybe never reported the incident to police or police never connected it to him if a woman did report it? I don't know. This is unknown, but it's just something that made me curious because if he did give himself a puncture wound, it's just so weird and it's so dumb. He's such an idiot. 
So James Koadetic is held in police custody with his bail set to $250,000 and is finally officially charged with 25-year-old Deirdre O'Brien's murder on May 12th, 1983. Then in December 1983, he is officially charged with 18-year-old Amy Hoffman's murder. The trial for Amy's murder takes place the next year in October 1984, which is two years after her murder, and James is convicted by a jury of first-degree murder, kidnapping, aggravated sexual assault, and unlawful possession of a weapon with intent to kill, and he is sentenced to death. And fun fact, he is actually the first man sentenced to death after New Jersey's revised capital punishment statute. Then, the following May of 1985 is when the trial occurs for the murder of Deirdre O'Brien. And again, he is officially convicted by a jury of the murder of Deirdre. But because the jury cannot unanimously agree on the death penalty, he receives a life sentence instead. Unfortunately, the state Supreme Court overturns the death sentence from the Amy Hoffman case and sentences him to life in prison instead, giving him two life sentences for the murders of the two women instead of a death sentence and a life sentence. So 36 years after the murders, in 2018, James is still trying to find a way to prove himself innocent of certain charges because he has nothing better to do in prison. He files a motion in Morristown Superior Court to have his DNA tested against the semen that was found in 18-year-old Amy Hoffman's autopsy that's been stored at the medical examiner's office for decades because James claims that he did not rape or murder Amy. So, in Amy's case, two slides containing semen samples are confirmed to exist, and they're located. This motion is actually accepted, and the state police lab begins testing the semen sample from one of the two slides. But because DNA can easily degrade over time, especially if not stored correctly in correct conditions or temperature, there isn't enough DNA to create an accurate profile of the killer from the semen sample to compare with James's DNA. When the police lab offers to test the DNA from the second slide in evidence, James just suddenly changes his mind and turns it down. Probably because he knows it'll show he's the killer, but that is the most recent update in this case. Otherwise, James is in his 70s, rotting in Trenton State Prison for the rest of his life, and they have even denied his request to move him to a prison closer to family. So just keeping him isolated and miserable, and that's all I could ask for. So this case has been heart-crushing, but there is one light in the darkness that I do want to point out and think is really important here. In Deirdre O'Brien's memory, her parents actually founded a facility and child advocacy center in 1996 that assists children who have been abused or witnessed domestic abuse, and this facility is called Deirdre's House, so it was named after her. And I just love to see a family take their pain and use it as fuel to help the lives of others. There's just something so beautiful about that. And the Deirdre's House website says that they have opened their door over 32,000 times to child victims of abuse, which is just incredible. So I'm glad we could end this episode on a semi-positive note. So thank you all so much for listening to this episode, and I apologize if it was boring without Devin's commentary that always makes me laugh, but he will be back next week. 
Please remember to subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media. It's at Ghastly Podcast on TikTok and Instagram so that we can make it spooky season year round for you guys. We'll see you next Thursday. Bye. Thank you.